This podcast was produced on the land of the Jar Jar Wurrung and Kulin Nation and recorded on Kulin land. We acknowledge the Jara and Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This is one of the things about this job. It's like running a newsroom with amazing journalists who are interested in so many things and you don't have... Like a Rupert Murdoch, you know, telling you, you know, or... Yeah, there's almost like a real purity to Mm. it at this stage. Yeah. (laughs) Which is very interesting. listening to the state of the fourth estate where we get to know the people behind the news discuss the state of the industry and what it takes to be a journalist i'm taylor oates and i'm sarah mishra and here to discuss the state of the fourth estate tito ambio former abc journalist who also worked in east timor and indonesia and is now a journalism lecturer at rmit welcome thank you pleasure to be here so tell us how did you get started in journalism I think I always knew that I love telling stories. I think I was one of those accidental journalists, uh, many of us in the industry. I remember making puppets when I was maybe five or six, just telling stories. And my dad bought me a radio with cassette tapes that you can record things with. And I just started recording my own news, pretending to be a news reader when I was a kid. What happened was in Indonesia at the time, because I grew up under the dictatorship of Suharto, there was a lot of censorship. And there is this Indonesian writer, uh, Senogumira Jidarma, who was also a journalist, who wrote a book called When Journalism is Silenced, Sastra, which is literature, literature must speak. So that was the time theatre people, poets, they were in the forefront of social change, leading a lot of the conversations. By involving myself in theatre, I involved myself basically with politics and journalism, social change. As a high school student at the time, I wanted to understand what was going on. Then I met a journalist who was a part of the theatre group as well, and he was like, hey, why don't you write something for us? He helped me write my first article, and that that was it. And what was your first story about? I was criticising the way uh, music festivals in Bandung uh, at schools and little things like having to bribe the uh, the local police officers so you can get the uh, the permit, etc. So without actually realising it, I was doing some investigative work on on these things. (laughs) I was just being annoying. But that's a part of journalism, right? And I wrote about it and published it. And I, I don't know if it made any change or impact, but it impacted me in the way I approach the world. Oh, well, yeah. sounds like it made an impact. So that's pretty exciting. <laughs> and you teach data journalism at mm. RIT. What attracts you to that field? I became attracted with data journalism in Australia because mm. I did a, a bit of publishing in Indonesia and then I moved to Australia because my sister was living here. And I got the job at the ABC. I felt very kind of weirdly out of place. There was something about Australian <laughs> newsroom culture that I just didn't get. Why is it that like my, I was pitching stories, but it seems like my stories were not being picked up? 
but I was lucky because I was also working for the Indonesian team at the ABC under Radio Australia. So I was able to also do stories that I knew worked for an Indonesian audience. But when it comes to publishing stories in English, I was feeling a little bit kind of like, what's what's going on here? So honestly, I was just trying to go, okay, what is it that I can do to to make people listen to my story ideas? And I thought, ah, numbers. Let's use numbers. And to be honest, I was like, I'm Asian, you know, in Australia. And like in Indonesia, I was such a bad student when it comes to maths, right? Mm. Um, I turned out to be okay with it. And that gave me an in. Basically, I was able to tell people there is a story that I saw from just looking at the numbers I learned that when you use numbers in whatever you say people listen to you because people think like oh you know what you're talking about mm. <laughs> I mean Sura you know you're in science right so oh yeah <laughs> so you know this you become really interested in the programming side of things as well because once you do your own data visualization you go oh wow and this is something that you can do yourself and that that's just an empowering thing and I think I became interested in journalism because it's, it's empowering right mm. I think I was realizing that data was going to be a big part of our world. Do you think that data journalism has progressed as an industry since you started mm. to become a bit interested in it? Yeah, definitely. I didn't realize I was doing data journalism until I stopped working at the ABC and then I started to give myself time. Oh, there is a whole world of data journalism out there that I have no idea about. At the time, there was this organization called Hackers and Hacks, there's the, all these people, programmers and journalists, getting together, doing cool things mm. together. But I think there is a risk of thinking that data is the end of your story, as I think we are becoming more and more nuanced in the way we see data. I think data is more a guide to look at what question do I need to ask based on the data that I see. So it's almost like the data is the answer and you're trying to work backwards to find it. <laughs> it's like that. What's that book? Where you know the answer, the oh, galaxy. The oh, the sci-fi. The galaxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> 42. 42. 42. Well, you know, it's, yeah, the number is 42 and you're trying to figure out the question, right? Yeah. yeah. I think it is a bit like that. Well, speaking of what you can see, shall we jump into a piece of journalism that you've brought in for us? Let's talk about Coast of Java. This is a story that you have recently published in History Today. He is performing for his YouTube audience, but there is also another group for whom he is performing, the ghosts of the Chinese Indonesians who were killed in a riot in Jakarta in May 1998. Between 12th and 15th of May, more than a thousand people, mostly Chinese Indonesians, died. And it is their ghosts who watch as he dances. When he finished, one of them possesses him commanding him to tell the story of what happened in that garage during the riot. So this is a very specific genre of content on Indonesian YouTube. And as I understand, it has to do with your research about horror content in Indonesian YouTube. Mm. It's kind of spooky. It's definitely sad once you understand what's the background behind it. And as you say yourself in the piece, somewhat unnerving. How did you first of all come across this piece? I started doing my PhD on ghost stories five years ago because I was thinking about a topic that I could work for at least four or five years without getting bored. <laughs> yeah, I went back to storytelling 
right? I went back to, okay, what is the most powerful form of storytelling? And I just thought ghost stories. And since then, kind of fell in love with this idea of using ghosts as our partners to try to tell stories about the world. I don't believe in, you know, like ghosts as in... That's that. what I was going to ask you now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it is a very interesting question about belief. Right? Mm. I think... I don't believe that ghosts can come back. You know, if, if you're dead, you're dead. That's what I believe, right? You can't come back to life. But there is something, I think, about why we love ghost stories. But I think there's something about the way we use and tell stories about ghosts and about this ghost stories that can really help us understand about the complexities of living in the world today. If you actually look at how people talk about ghosts in academia, it's not just ghosts of dead people right it's also ghosts of events things that keep coming back to haunt us and that word in english right haunting it basically means home in old french people still say that's my old haunt right that's the the place Ooh. i keep going back to right so this notion of keeping you know the, something that keeps coming back to us that is haunting right and i think in australia especially when we talk about the history of indigenous massacres, etc. A lot of these stories are haunting us because we don't really talk about it. So it's something that keeps haunting us and, and it will keep haunting us until we have the ability to look at the ghosts and yeah, face our fears. And you really focus in on that massacre in May 1998. Mm. Is there something that drew you to this story in particular? Oh, I mean, this is probably my superhero or a supervillain <laughs> origin story. I was in Bandung when the riot happened. We still really don't know how many people died. Mostly Chinese Indonesians died in this riot. And I grew up in Bandung. I grew up in a school where Chinese Indonesians and Pribumi uh, or native Indonesian, we went to school together. The usual uh, thing to happen in Indonesia is it's quite separate, right? It's quite segregated and there is a long history behind the segregation between Chinese Indonesians and non-Chinese Indonesians. But I had you know, I had Chinese Indonesian friends. So when the riot happened, some of my friends disappeared. None of them uh, were killed, but I'm sure some of their families were probably killed. There's just this deep, deep sadness in me. The people who were doing the killing were Javanese. I'm Javanese. There's that realization that I have the capacity to do such a horrible thing. That was, and I think that's why I'm quite passionate to, you know, in trying to understand what happened then, you know, because it's like what happened to me and what happened to these people who were committing the murders, the rapes. We're both Javanese, we're both the same people, you know, ethnically, genetically, but I want to understand what is the root of this darkness. When you started to approach this piece, what was your research process? Well, because this was a part of my PhD as well. My approach to journalism now, because I'm not a full-time journalist anymore, is quite anthropological. Journalism and anthropology, there's, there's a lot of similarities. But I think good anthropologists are people who are basically like journalists with more time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was so well, my research process was basically just looking at so many YouTube videos 
talking with people, talking with the YouTubers, trying to get them to recommend me stuff. What happens when I just give in to the, to the algorithm? And yeah, I, that video came up. I think there are sometimes in journalism, I think we just always think about our oh, interview is the method right, for everything. But sometimes I think you just have to kind of just stand back and observe and disappear as well, you know. So, and in fact. I'm kind of developing this idea of stalking as a method, right? <laughs> Not as in stalking. I should find a different there needs to be a better word, word for it. Uh, <laughs> if me ghosting, you can take ghosting. Maybe ghosting, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just haunting. like... Haunting, there you go. Haunting, yeah. yeah. Maybe, more, maybe haunting as a method. As in like, yeah, just just disappearing into the background and mm. just observing mm. what's going on and then describing what's going on. So did you do that with a group of YouTubers? Yeah, basically, <laughs> I'm stalking them. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm haunting them. Mm. Maybe it is, yeah, maybe I am it haunting works. them. Yeah, yeah, I think it works, yeah. So, in this story, you don't really shy away from the really graphic details. Why didn't you shy away from that? It is a really interesting question, especially at the moment where we're seeing all the violence in Gaza, right? Mm. My, my partner actually kind of asked me about how do you deal with this as a journalist how do you deal with violence and and I think I have two answers to your question number one is that yeah as a journalist you just kind of train yourself right to kind of go there are things that people need to know and there are things that you can't shy away from by not shying away from showing the violent things people get angry enough to do something so maybe that's just a part of it maybe maybe i didn't shy away from it because i want people to not shy away from talking about what's actually going on i think that's a really good point it is shocking but so is what's happening Mm. it is confronting i guess where do you stand on that line is it worth kind of making people feel uncomfortable for getting them to see the truth and highlighting that there's going to be controversial maybe but you know if you look at european folk stories they're dark mm. <laughs> and oh, yeah. it's a story for adults and children and they're dark and children's like dark things right so i'm, I'm not saying children should be exposed to violent things but i think we need to prepare them as well maybe more my generation and the generations before me we fucked up the world <laughs> right? and now it's your generation and below who are going to have to try to fix it cheers <laughs> <laughs> i think it's important for us to be able to find a mode of storytelling where we tell people bad things are happening and i think from that we can build empathy as well in um, media and children's cartoon as well that in the last decade itself, it has all become very vanilla. Yeah. Someone told me recently that they've cut all the choking out of Simpsons. It's just interesting how like we even are going backwards and starting to make things from the past a little safer. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, Surah, that you mentioned about that things are becoming more vanilla, but at the same time, we're seeing so much horror. And I think it balances out when things go really vanilla that need for the dark things are being filled by Mm. this horror stuff that could be quite vanilla as well but i think at least i mean like buffy right (laughs) classic. (laughs) it's very vanilla but it tells a dark story about dark things that we cannot control in our lives you mentioned that you are you don't believe in ghosts Mm. but when you're actually sitting down to write this piece how do you keep that skepticism at bay Mm. how do you make sure you're honoring the story i think 
I have to tell people that I don't believe in ghosts, partly because I need to be clear about my bias, right? Mm. When you are a journalist and you're writing about something and you think you're being completely not biased, I think you're lying to yourself. And I think that's my anthropological training. That's not my journalistic training, right? So in an anthropology, you kind of have to go, okay, what is the positionality of my own knowledge? What are the filters that I have in my brain when I'm looking at the world? And I wasn't trained to do that you know, mm -hmm. as a journalist. Yeah, when I'm writing about this video where young Chinese Indonesians are engaging with old Chinese Indonesian ghosts, there's a part of me that says, oh, that's bullshit because oh, ghosts yeah. don't come back to life. But that's when I have to go, oh, hold on. I should be writing from their point of view. That's so interesting because it's, it's almost having to let yourself believe mm. for a moment, even if it's just to write the story. I love the fact that you ended on like and subscribe as like the final subtitle because that's often how YouTube videos are structured. Mm. And so it really does reflect the video that you originally watched. And also I think it's really significant that the YouTubers that you talked about in this story, they weren't there for the subs. They weren't there for that. They were like, please do, but like, that's not why we're here. Mm. We're here to tell these stories. Why did you feel like that was a moment that needed to be accentuated and highlighted? On YouTube, you see a lot of performances. And I think horror in Indonesia is very popular and it's a very good way for people to get audiences as if you're a YouTuber and you see this with a lot of celebrities who are, have YouTube channels whenever they need an injection of virality you can just do paranormal experience or something mm, like that right? true I was seeing a lot of authenticity but I was also seeing a lot of you know performativity when it comes to horror but I think that was just a genuinely authentic very YouTube moment when they said we don't want this to go viral. Yeah, it was a genuinely touching moment for me as well where I felt like this people really needed to say something and they did despite the risks that they might face. When I read your story, it reminded me of some of the contents that I had seen back at home. I'm Indian. Um, I grew up watching a lot of Indian news and there's this very specific type of content. I would classify it as horror where news media would show these women in temples and uh, they would be having fits and the news would headline this as a goddess has possessed them and a goddess was like speaking through them and to me even as a kid I was like something is not right but at the same time this was given prime news time. What I'm getting at is why do you think it is necessary for journalists to cover stories like this? If we do have journalists who can write about ghosts well, I think that means we also have journalists who can write about history well. I think knowing how to engage with ghosts and haunting things allow you to talk about history, allow you to even talk of the future. In Java, for example, this mining company drilled this area and accidentally, and you can't see my uh, <laughs> quotation marks here, accidentally hit a mud volcano and mud came out of this hole and basically covered three villages, I think. Like thousands of people lost their homes. And if you go there, there's, there's this story about this snake, this giant snake. So people, Javanese, would go there and collect stones that have come out from the mud because the story is that this is the stone from the snake, from the ancient snake. I think people believe in the snake, but also I think people are pointing at the fact that, yeah, 
there is all these companies, big players that are responsible, that should be held responsible, that are not being held responsible. They are like the, the giant snake. What is behind the myths? How do I use this myth to be able to get into the truth? I think I'm going to take ghost stories very seriously now. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like you very much did that in The Ghosts of Java because you using the ghosts to mm. lead the story but it's really about the history that actually happened there so i think you absolutely nailed your own advice <laughs> oh, thank you So let's discuss the state of the industry. You've reported across two, three different countries. What is the biggest difference in the freedom of press that you've noticed and your ability to convey and tell stories in those countries? I was an editor. I wasn't on the front line of journalism, so I don't know much about Istimor. With Indonesia, obviously, it's a country that is struggling with the, the culture of censorship. And now we also are dealing with the problem of the oligarchs, where in Australia we have basically almost a monopoly, but in Indonesia we don't have a monopoly, but we have just a bunch of people who own all the media organizations. Right? I think it's just the fact that good journalism does not pay. I think that's something that is impacting on the freedom of press, which despite the talent, despite the amazing things that are happening... It's very, very difficult for journalistic organizations to survive without a brand name like the New York Times or without someone to just basically spend money on you like Al Jazeera or, you know, The Guardian. Yeah, journalism is expensive. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you're right, it doesn't pay great. Anyway. <laughs> Indonesia is ranked 108 in the Global Press Freedom Index, Ooh. as Australia is 27, so not doing great. And you mentioned that for you, journalism is empowering. Mm. Working across both countries, did you find it equally as empowering, or was that something that you only really found when you had more freedom? I have to say, in Australia, if you're a journalism student, you can do achichis, right? which is the Australian Consortium for In-Country Studies of Indonesia or something like that. Anyway, you can go to Indonesia to do an internship in journalism, uh, placements, etc. And I want students to experience what I experienced as a journalist in Indonesia, which I did not experience that much in Australia, which is you see stories just everywhere around you, right? Like Jakarta, for example, and you know, Sura, I don't know, where are you from in India? All around, originally from MP, but then Ahmedabad. Yeah, Ahmedabad, I mean, yeah. but it's, it's just like this thriving living city i'm sure you know this experience as well and and taylor you've been overseas when you come back to melbourne from a city like mumbai or from or like yeah. jakarta it's just like oh where's everyone yeah. <laughs> i think it's yeah in indonesia you just I, th I think a friend of mine who's a writer in indonesia summarizes it quite well jakarta is a place for ideas melbourne is a place for thinking 
because when you're in a place like Jakarta, you just have so many ideas. You just see everything and just go, oh, that's a story. Oh, that's a story. But you don't have time to actually work on anything is because you're so busy and the traffic's crazy. I love living in Melbourne just because it's so calming, <laughs> especially coming from a city Melbourne like is Melbourne. calming too. Melbourne is calming to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm from Adelaide. <laughs> Melbourne is crazy. <laughs> I oh. feel that though. Melbourne is very calming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. It's like Melbourne is just like, oh yeah, it's like meditation every day. One of the things about Jakarta journalism in Indonesia is that you collaborate a lot with people from other media organizations. Oh. If you're from South Jakarta and a politician that you want to uh, interview um, is calling a press conference in North Jakarta, like in, in two hours, three hours time, there's just no way you can get there, right? Mm. <laughs> so you just call a friend, another journalist, who's like, oh, can you go there, record the, the press conference for me? I love the collaborative aspect of journalism in Indonesia. In Australia, it's very competitive. Yeah. I think in Australia, it's very, very siloed, I think, which is not good. Mm, I've very much experienced that in my own realm. I work in news in regional Victoria and I'm a one-man team. Mm, I think collaboration is the key in Australian journalism. Absolutely. Mm. I was such a, like... I want to do projects by myself. I hate team projects. Look at me now, co-hosting a podcast. <laughs> We're doing this together. You're stuck with me. Oh. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, you know, I teach journalism at RMIT. For me, it's like one of the best things about studying together is finding collaborators mm. that you can mm. work with after you graduate. You need to be taught that there are different ways to collaborate, and I try uh, very hard in my courses to to force people to, <laughs> to work with each other. Talking about the whole East-Western dynamic, where it's mm. like the culturistic value yeah. over like individuals versus the whole collective. Yeah, and I think mm. one of the theories that I've been really interested in looking at is decoloniality. Mm. When people think about good journalism, often the first people who, will, who people will think about are white men, <laughs> right? Yep. Why in Australia, why don't we learn about good journalistic practices around our region and done by First Nation people? A good story is always a product of collaboration. But to win awards, <laughs> you have to have a byline, right? Yeah. It's just that a lot of Western countries just kind of think that individualism is like the best thing ever. I think we need to think more about, yeah, how do we actually lift each other? Would you say that collaboration then is kind of built from culture? I think you can't just change journalism by saying, let's collaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, we're trying. There are good collaborative projects that I have seen in Australia, for example, like uh, The Age and ABC have done mm. some amazing stuff together. I think there's something about this kind of siloed approach in journalism in Australia that I see as unhealthy because, well, as we said before, journalism is expensive. I think we need to share more of the workload, and especially with regional journalism, right? Mm. We need to lift regional journalists and get them to be able to tell their stories to a wider uh, audience. Sometimes I go to a small town in Victoria, pick up a local paper, and I'll be reading and say, oh my God, like really good stories. Going nowhere aside from just that little community, Mm. you know, no one else is reading uh, this story. Speaking of Australian approach to journalism, social media continues to expand. You're teaching multimedia. You mm. see that daily. With social media expanding, the capacity for misinformation has expanded as well. We are literally seeing a war unfold online. 
We are seeing the journalists from the ground, from Palestine, delivering us their coverage, not through any channels, not through like any news outlets, but through social media. Mm. On the other hand, though, we are seeing how Western media and Australian news media has also covered the war in Israel and Palestine. There has been a certain dissatisfaction in social media when it comes to how Western media has been covering this war. Do you think that our news media has been doing enough? I think no is the short answer. <laughs> I think there's some good journalism being mm. done. I think there is a bigger question about how we in Australia tell international stories. You know, just the number of foreign bureaus that have been closed um, in the last decade or so, and which is kind of interesting as well because like the ABC has a few journalists, I don't know how many journalists working in the US, for example, but maybe just two journalists covering Southeast Asia, let alone the Middle East, right? We don't have people who understand the regions. You know, I come from a Muslim world as well, right? Indonesia is a Muslim majority. And it's familiar to me. It's all this stuff about Palestine is familiar to me. Of course, if you're from a Muslim world, when you see the conflict, you kind of tend to look at it as this is an attack on Muslims. And meanwhile, it's kind of surprising to me. Well, it's kind of good to me that there's a lot of allyship around Palestine from non-Muslims in Melbourne that I see. But also it's like, where have you been? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a problem that's been happening for a long time. And I think partly because, yeah, we journalists in Australia, we haven't been really informing people. And of course, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to talk about what's happening in Israel and Palestine because it is a complex thing. We need people who actually understand. I can say that there are newsrooms in Australia who are kind of saying to Muslim journalists or journalists who have any kind of relationship with Palestine that they're not allowed to cover this story right? because it's seen as you're not being objective. But it's like, no, you actually need them and you need to help them. They're not going to be objective. How can you be objective when people are dying? We're very good at telling stories about Australia. We're not very good at telling stories outside of Australia, I have to say. You make a really great point that the, the people that should be presenting that news is the people who have been affected by it in the past or it affects now. It's brought to mind, like, when, you know, Tony Abbott was Minister for Women. Like, <laughs> it gives me that level of cringe, right? Because everyone was like, oh, it's great, he's objective. But he doesn't understand. That's mm. the thing. There's objectivity and then there's understanding. And I think perhaps, like, almost a, a better thing, a... a thing to bring to the table but yeah. to shut those journalists out seems it's it seems wrong well yeah it's like if you want good stories about indigenous people you hire indigenous journalists mm -hmm. right? you want a good good stories about the muslim world then you need people who can actually read arabic at least you know? yeah. um like you know there's that video of the israeli army oh, yeah. pointing at the calendar written in Arabic saying this is a schedule of whatever. I mean, I, mean, I don't know it's what I think Hamas about that. Hamas roster. Yeah, it's a Hamas roster said. or something. Like, if you have a journalist who can read Arabic, they are the ones who will be able to read that and go, mm. oh, hold on, that's a calendar. <laughs> and do you think there are enough diverse voices in media? Well, this is something that I've been thinking about. I think diversity, I've been involved with diversity for, for a while now in Australia. I think after what happened with The Voice, the way many media organisations in Australia 
cover the story about Gaza. I think we don't need more diversity. We need more anti-racism. <laughs> yeah, that's think, a great way to put it. I don't want organizations to just go, hey, we have a brown face reading the news. Amazing. Yeah. Woo. Congratulations. But are you actually allowing this brown face to actually mm. have an impact on the stories you tell? Are they actually changing your news agenda? Maybe not. I think it's not enough to just go... Let's have more diversity. I think we need to see a newsroom in Australia with a racism beat. Mm -hmm. Just appoint one journalist, specifically talking about racism. You will annoy people, right? Because Australians don't like it when you point <laughs> out their racism. <laughs> <laughs> But I think if you do that, if you're brave enough as a newsroom to go, yeah, we're going to be talking about racism, I think people will go, yeah, I want to know about racism in Australia. But I think when it comes to the next step, which is what's beyond diversity, and I think it is anti-racism, I think it's talking about colonialism, I think a lot of journalists still go, eh, we don't want to go there. Can I ask what what about the coverage of The Voice stood out to you? I think maybe it is the yes campaign versus no campaign. The reality of First Nation people is very complex, mm. right? I actually had a chat with someone from the Netherlands about this, and he said we need to appoint more historians to be a part of newsrooms mm. oh. maybe that's a, actually a good idea because like I in the research side of things yeah, yeah someone like who would be able to go hey hold on you know like if you want to talk about the yes campaign the no campaign uh, let's look at it historically not all just about objectivity but let's go into the complexity mm. but of course that means money yes true very <laughs> true um let's talk about this piece that you brought in mm. the outland or the cage ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You might have seen kids on the news from places like Cairns, Townsville and Mount Isa, drinking and stealing cars and landing behind bars as a result. Most of these kids are Aboriginal, some as young as 10, the same age as me in those videos. But for the nation's leaders, those kids are just another problem to solve. There's been a lot of tough talk about how to fix it. The public expect tough measures on this particular cohort of young criminals. People are afraid to hang their washing in their backyard without making sure their house is in lockdown. What sort of society is this? But there are voices missing in the conversation the kids behind the crimes. I want to talk to them and ask them, why do you do it? And why do you keep doing it despite knowing where you might end up? And that's why I'm here, on the streets of Mount Isa, a town with Queensland's highest youth crime rate. If we were to ask you to Tell a friend about this story. How would you summarise it? Firstly, I would just summarise it as amazing journalism. Right? That works. <laughs> <laughs> We hear a lot about youth violence in Australia. If you want to hear a, a reader story that looks at youth violence and Indigenous youth specifically, and you want to hear the different aspects, including from the, the youth themselves then yeah, read the story. And there are a lots of multimedia elements to this piece. There's audio mm. as mm. well as like a scrolly telly kind of 
story. What do the multimedia aspects of the piece um, bring to the experience of reading or listening to it? I mean, one of the things for me is just the first illustration you see, like the photo. Um, mm. It's actually quite powerful. It's a, you know, it's a photo of a silhouette of one of the young people they interviewed, and then they did this little beautiful animation, like an indigenous kind of design animation. I think that's what ABC is good at, and it's a shame that the good stuff that the ABC does they're not very visible because this mm. story is amazing right and a part of this is me just wanting to say to the ABC hey just support your amazing journalist mm. like this story of Brooke Fryer it's amazing And but like I don't know like how many of your friends would have read or listened to this story for example oh I don't mm. I don't know anyone who would have probably because I probably would have heard about it <laughs> <laughs> that's a similar issue to what regional journalism mm. is not you know cry my own tears but there's a lot of hard work that gets put out there and that's that's a real shame i think maybe a part of this is because we journalists don't sell ourselves out there enough maybe because we feel uncomfortable with it right we, as journalists yeah. we're not supposed to be kind of pring ourselves do you think that's changing though because you're noticing more and more journalists especially people who are connected to a brand becoming influence-esque. Mm. Yeah. My question to that is to what cost, right? Yeah. What, at what cost? We get people who are amazing uh, on social media, like Cam Wilson, for example, uh, Crikey, right? I mean, mm. He just understands how the internet works and it's as amazing. I want to say that just do good journalism and people <laughs> will hear about you, but that's not the case. Mm. Coming back to the outline of the cage, though, had you done the story, would you have approached it any differently? Well, I think one of the things about this is that I would definitely have told the story differently because I would not have the knowledge, the indigenous theme mm. in, at the ABC, right? I think this is a part of me understanding my biases, right? Because I, I, I would approach the same people, but I don't think I would be able to get the same treatment of the story. It would be a completely different story if it was done by me. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very good piece, so you are against that. Where do you see the future of journalism? I think my hope for Australian journalism is to go beyond just brown faces and black faces. I think we need to have journalists who can grow their storytelling as Melbourne grows so then we Melbournians can have a better understanding of what Melbourne is. I talk a lot, a lot about this with Ahmed Yusuf from the ABC who's from Broadmeadows, right? Mm. And the way he talks about Broadmeadows is just like, yeah, this guy knows Broadmeadows probably one of the best journalists to talk about Broadmeadows. We need more people like him from all these different areas of Melbourne so we can tell better stories about Melbourne. Do you feel that perhaps local journalism is getting a bit lost in the big city metro cycle and perhaps those smaller, valuable, personal stories are not being told? I think if you compare with the US, some of their best TV journalists are regional, what we would call regional. They're from small towns. I think maybe I've played this in one of our classes. The story about the veteran and the child, what's his name, Patrick and Emmett? It's a story about a friendship between this really old guy and a really young child. The old guy had to go to an, an old person's home. So it's a sad story about the separation between these mm. two friends that went viral on YouTube and the journalists won awards for it. And this is what we don't see, right? Like those human stories that maybe a lot of local journalists are telling. So I think, yes, is my short answer. 
Hmm. That's very interesting. Well, we've discussed the state of the fourth estate. Thank you for joining us today, T2. Thank you very much for having me here. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's how we end it now. Yay! <laughs> The State of the Fourth Estate podcast is co-produced by Sura Mishra and Taylor Oates. Music by Wessa, branding by Lee Barkey, and social content by Yara Muna.